0: Father, I know that um, doing what we're about to do, um, looking at your word can become very familiar. Um, I know that we seem to we do it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so I ask, Spirit, that you would protect our hearts from the familiarity that can come from reading your word and from desiring to encounter you in your word, and that today you would put in our hearts a fresh hunger and a fresh thirst. Um, to encounter the living God, even as we already have through singing and as we do as we encourage one another, may we freshly encounter the living God as we look into this gift, this precious gift of your written word. And so help us as we read this morning, as we, as we look into your word, help us to understand what these stories are about, help us to believe they're true, help us to love them the way that we should, and then to live differently as a result, God, Walk us through that process in our hearts this morning, I pray. And Lord, I know that each one of my friends in this room is facing different challenges, different hopes, different dreams, um, different troubles. And so I know that you can take my words and your word and your spirit and you can care for each person here today. And I pray you would do that. I pray you would care for my friends. May they leave here believing they have heard from you. So speak to us and speak to us individually and speak to us corporately, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you came in this morning, you should have gotten a handout. And if you didn't, that's fine. There's more on the back table. Maybe I can get somebody to, if you don't have one, raise your hand and we can make sure you get one. There's some on the tall tables in the back. The handout is important because it is a review of what we discovered last week. What we said as we look at the rest of the book of Genesis, we are given by God a bit of a road map to know what it is we are to look for while we're reading it together. And so there's four things that we discovered last week from God's word about how to understand the rest of the book of the Genesis. And there's just four things. The first is the whole idea of sending, that God sends Joseph to preserve life and to keep people alive. That's important. So as you're reading, we're looking for places where God sends Joseph, where Joseph is being used to preserve life, to give life to people. The second is evil. We're going to look for where there's evil in the story and then how God uses that evil for good. We're going to see Joseph being tested. We saw that from Psalm 105. And we're going to look for how he's tested and then how he perseveres through those testings. And the fourth thing we saw was suffering. That one of the major ways that Joseph is a type of Christ is that he brings hope, he brings life, and yet he's rejected by everybody just like Jesus was rejected. And so that's where we're going to see him primarily as a type of Christ. So those are the four things to keep your eyes out for, even today. And we know those are not the only four things we're looking for. There's many other things God wants to show us from his word and and reveal to us, but these are four of the things where we know that we can be on the lookout for. So this morning we're in Genesis 38. So if you've got your uh, scripture journals, you want to take those out to Genesis 38. Gene, I think he's going to come and read to us. Gene gets the mic today, huh? Gene's going to read to us chapter 38. And she so you can look for those things and other things along the way. Thank you, Gene. It happened. Sorry, hold on, hold on. I, for the nine millionth time.
1: Hello? Hello? Okay. <clears throat> it happened at a time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter... Daughters of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shuah, he took her and went in to her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called her na- his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar. But Ur. Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground, so as not to give her offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared he would die, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tamar, or sorry, he went up to Timnah, to the sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat in the entrance of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of of widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Odulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anum at the broadside? And, and they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. Or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by that immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her, to her father-in-law, By the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And, that, and she said, Please identify whose they are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not go into her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one, one put out a hand, and the midwife, the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself! Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread in his on his hand, and his name was Zerah. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Am I on? Good. Yeah. You, every time we get to these stories, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> what are people doing with their lives? <laughs> and with this, story, I'm also thinking that, and I'm going, okay, there's some things here that I'm not quite sure I even understand. And maybe you're with me. Like, there's some cultural stuff going on. So here's what I'm going to do. Rather than just retell the story, let me just highlight the things where I'm going, this is kind of weird. And I think the story is kind of self, self-explanatory, is it not? I mean, we don't really need to, I don't need to rehash it, but let me clear up maybe some mixed, things that could be mixed up. First of all, the first thing I think is this. Um, I think, yes, it seems right for Judah to be giving Ur and Onan to Tamar. That was the cultural thing to do. So uh, you're married, husband dies, a brother steps in to make sure she has offspring for the sake of the brother that's dead. So that was a common thing. So yes, that's okay. But no, it is not okay for Judah to seek out a prostitute because his wife is dead. Okay, just make sure we're clear. That's a no-go. That's not good on Judah's part. Then we got this thing where he gets to her and and they do this exchange of signets, cords, and staffs. Okay, so what's all that about? Well, basically what she was saying was, give me your social security card, your driver's license, and a major credit card. That's kind of what she's asking for. She wants ID just to prove that it's him. So that's what she's collecting from him so they can have their exchange together. And then we got to talk about Tamar for just a second. Is what Tamar does here right or is it wrong? Well, the story doesn't tell us, and so I'm not sure that we're supposed to spend a lot of time trying to decide what she did was right or wrong. All we can go on is Judah's words, where he says that she is less wrong than me, which is not a very good thing for him to say, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit too. But basically, I think it's true. I mean, everything she did could not have pleased God, lying and tricking and getting pregnant by her father-in-law, but in their culture and from what she knew as a person who didn't know anything about God, I'm not judging her because she'll probably be in heaven, and I want to be able to talk to her without her feeling like I judged her, okay? So I'm going to let that one go, too. And I don't think that's the point of the text. And I think that's that's the thing about this story. I'm reading it going, okay, what's the point? I mean, there's so many cultural things that are weird, but what are the heart issues? What are the things that are in this that I go, okay, this is common to me as a man, as a person, and this shows me something about who God is and what God is like because that's why we read God's word, because it's about God. And so there's two things, I think, that come out of this that are meant to grip the reader's heart in light of the context of Genesis and all we've seen and where we are right now in this chapter. The first thing is this. God doesn't mess around with wickedness. And that's the first thing. It's supposed to jump off the pages to us. Evidently, Ur and Onan did such wickedness that God thought they should die. Now, we know that no one dies apart from God knowing and part of God's sovereign plan in people's lives. I'll die on the day that God chooses to take me home. But there's something different going on here. This is God striking them dead because of their wickedness, cutting their lives short because of their wickedness. And what makes us unique is this is the first time in Genesis, this is the first time in redemptive history where God is actually going after individuals. Right? He's done it before with fire and with water. He floods the whole earth. He warns everyone, but then he floods the earth. With the fire on Sodom, he warns them, and then he sends down the fire. This time, he is directly annihilating two individuals because of their wickedness. It's crazy. And we don't know what Ur did, but it must have been bad. We know what Onan did. And basically, he's refusing to give his sister-in-law children on behalf of his brother. And so he's selfish. And so this selfishness rises to such a point that God strikes him dead. That's scary stuff. This is scary stuff when I read it. And I think moments like this in redemptive history, they're few and far between where God goes after individuals. But I think it's meant to remind us of how God sees sin, of how God sees sin. Sin is bad. It's bad. It's an offense to a wonderful God. And it's deserving of death. Every sin, all sin is. And I think I just get too comfortable with my sin sometimes. I think sometimes the daily frequency of my sin or the magnitude of my sin just doesn't affect me like it should. Whether it's sins of omission or sins of commission. Whether it's me not doing the things God tells me to do. I mean, he tells us to love him with all of his heart, all of our hearts and all of our soul, all of our mind and all of our strength. And I know I fail that every day. That should have some impact on me, some realization. And then there's the things that God tells us, don't do those things. Don't don't believe these things. And yet I still do those things and I still at times believe those things, but I don't take it seriously. I can just keep going on through life as if nothing happened. Listen, the list, I think, is long of sins that we commit and we fall short, I think, moment by moment. And we need to realize from this story, again, that we are worthy of death. And I think it's good to remember, too, that the reason that God takes it so seriously is because he wants you to live the way he created humans to live. He wants you to live free. He wants you to enjoy him. Sin is deceptive. It makes something look really good, and it's not. It's not. And he doesn't want us to be tripped up and tricked and addicted and burned out and exhausted. He doesn't want that for us. So it's out of love that he takes sin seriously. It's an offense against him. And he knows it stinks for us. And so he wants us to see it serious. So we go, whoa, he takes it that serious because he wants me to be free from it. He wants to change me. He wants my life to be different. And so it's good that he reminds us, again, here, to avoid, to to see wickedness the way that he sees it. And so God doesn't mess around with sin. He doesn't. And this is a reminder of that. And it it is against God's character. And it's against his attributes. And it's against his perfect plan to make us the humans he wants us to be. So God not only doesn't mess around with sin, but you know what else this story tells us? Is that God doesn't mess around with grace. He doesn't mess around with grace. There is so much grace in this passage, in this story, if we slow down to see it. I mean, look how he treats Judah. I mean, Judah's own confession is Tamar is more righteous than he is. Or maybe better put, he should have said, I'm not righteous. (laughs) But he didn't. Instead, he's, he's, well, uh, she's more righteous than I am. Not in any way declaring that he is not righteous. But think about what he did. I mean, what he's doing to Tamar is the same thing that he killed Onan for, that God killed Onan for, right? Right? He's not, Judah doesn't give Tamar, his youngest son, after he promised to do that. So he's withholding offspring from Tamar, just like the two brothers that God, right? So therefore, what is he worthy of? The same thing, I think. It's the same thing. He's deserving of death. And so I have to wonder if the moment that she produced the signet and the cord, right? She holds them out. I wonder if he was like, oh, no oh no. I wonder if he panicked in that moment, thinking, if those two died for doing the same thing, then I'm dead. So I wonder how quickly those words left his mouth, right? Wait, 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 wait. She's more worthy than me. Cover cover this before I die. Because he realized that he was probably a dead man. So we just, I think, just as we consider that God would put Ur and Onan to death, we need to consider that God showed so much grace to Judah I mean, this story is really meant to cause us to go, wow, wait a minute. God killed Ur and Onan, but why not Judah too? The issue is, why did he spare Judah? I mean, he may have been quick to say something that sounded humble, but come on. And this is not the first thing he did. I mean, the dude's got a track record. I mean, he lies to Tamar and doesn't give her his youngest son. It appears he never gives her the youngest son. That's what it looks like anyway. She never gets him as a husband like he had promised. He's already hooked up with a prostitute. Oh, no, it wasn't a prostitute. Oops. That was actually my daughter-in-law. And then he's ready to burn her alive. I mean, I don't know what's near the top of your sin list, but verse 24, he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Sorry, that's near the top of my list. Like, you don't burn people alive. God never told him to do that, and and that's his response to her. And don't forget, the reason he is where he is is because he's probably fleeing the disaster at home that he caused by suggesting that Joseph's coat get ripped apart and dipped in blood and given to their father. So he's escaping that mess to get where he's gone. So he's contributed now to Joseph being put in captivity, really being a slave. So he's got a lot of stuff here. I mean, any one of these alone, in, in light of the context of the story, if these other two dudes are getting put to death, then certainly he's next in line. So why? What is going on here? Well, Listen, I think this is all grace. And I think it's even grace that he got caught. Right? I mean, she could have just, what if she had lost the stuff that he had given her? Or what if she decided just not to go and collect? Or what if she kept her pregnancy hidden and ran off? I mean, it is God's grace here that he would get caught. I think Tamar is to Judah almost what Nathan is to David, right? She's, she's calling him out, and that's good. It's good for him. God does not want to leave him blind in his sin, trapped in his selfishness. So God is literally saving him and setting him free to stop being the man that he is. Which, as we go through the rest of the book of the Genesis, we're going to see that he's a changed man over time. But God is at work. and I think moments like this in Redemptive history are meant to remind us of God's grace, that God spares Judah. God spares him to live another day. I mean, that's mercy. That is the grace of God. See, I think as we read through these stories, we should be more shocked that God lets Judah live than we are that God strikes the other two guys dead. What we know about God and what we know about man, we should be shocked that Judah's alive, not shocked that these other two guys' wickedness got them put to death. So I pray we'd be shocked by that. (laughs) Dumbfounded over the grace of God that he shows to Judah. We know that that grace that he shows to Judah does not come without cost. God can't just pass over Judah's sin and keep going. He can't just let him get away with it. And so we know from the New Testament what happens. I love these verses in Romans because they help me make so much sense of my Old Testament. They help me to understand redemptive history prior to Jesus. In Romans, Paul writes this. I know some of this is familiar, maybe some of it is not, but he says, For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So verse 21, 22, 23, 24 is all about our sin. We've all sinned. We all fall fall short. But then we can be justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption, through the sacrifice that is in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Something means he absorbed the wrath of God, the anger of God that was due us. Jesus was put forward to absorb that by his blood. And then we receive it by faith. And God did all of this, he says, this was to show God's righteousness, that God was righteous, that God does what is right. Because in his, in God's divine forbearance, forbearance he had passed over former Sins. Do you know who sin is included there? Judas, right? Every Old Testament person we read about who seems to get away or to receive grace despite their sin—that's how it happens. God's not just going la 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 la. I'm not going to look. It's not what God does. God is looking ahead to Jesus and going, "Don't worry, I'm looking over this. I'm passing over this now because one day Jesus will pay the sacrifice for that sin." So Jesus, even here in Romans, is paying the penalty for Judah's sins that deserved wrath, that deserved death, that deserved punishment. And then for us, right, God looks back on Jesus' sacrifice. So either you're prior to Jesus and God's looking forward to Jesus coming so that your sins can be forgiven, or you live now, and God looks back on what Jesus did and said, I'm going to attribute his sacrifice on your behalf so you can be forgiven. I'd rather live on this side of it, to be honest, than on that side. i like to know what's going on. It's how wonderful it is to know. He's not passing over my sins. They're forgiven. His blood paid the price. I'm free. Jesus did it all. He's my righteousness. I mean, this is just all good news. Good news that Jacob didn't know, but he would experience later on in the eternal life when he passes away. So God passed over Jacob's sin, but one day he would justify him. And that is just grace. It is all the grace of God. Oh, that we'd revel in the grace of God, church. That we would love the grace of God. That we'd want to sit and meditate on the grace of God. Consider the grace of God. Take into account just a little bit of what we deserve and then what we get. It is amazing the grace that God shows us every day. He's so patient, so kind to us. May we thank him for that. So God doesn't mess around with sin and God doesn't mess around with grace. But why else is this story here? Why does this story exist? Well, I think God put this story here so that we could compare and contrast it to the next chapter. I think chapters 38 and chapters 39 are meant to be read together as one. So let me me explain for a minute. Chapter divides are very unhelpful. They shouldn't be there. And if they weren't there, you'd keep reading. And if you kept reading, you would go, huh, there's a lot of similarities between this story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife as there is with Judah and Tamar. There's a lot of differences. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of overlap. And so this week, as I read them and kept reading, I went, you can't read the story of Joseph and Potiphar and not read it in light of Judah and Tamar, or you'll misunderstand the whole point of the Joseph Potiphar's wife story. So we got to look at them together this morning. Not only that, but they happen simultaneously. When you start to read it, you go, oh look, these are happening, if you could split your screen, I know some people have that, like you can watch two football games at one time happening simultaneously, or four, or maybe more than that, I don't even know. <laughs> this the way this lays out, I'll show you in a second, it's as if God wants you to see that these two stories are happening literally, and not literally second by second, but they're, they're overlapping in time. So if you look at how chapter 37 ends, chapter 37 ends, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. Okay, so that's how the story ends. So he's going to Egypt. And then look at verse 30, chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down. So simultaneously, Judah goes down. Now, Judah's got to have sons born, grow up, get married in this one chapter. So 16, 18, I don't know, 20 years has to pass in chapter 38. Then look how 39 starts. It starts the same exact way that chapter 37 ended. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, it's the exact same wording. So do you understand what's going on? in other words the 20 years that take place in chapter 38 are happening simultaneously to what's going to happen later in chapters 39 and 40. They're parallel. So we're just to read them as if they're happening split screen at the same time. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to read to you the next chapter, and you're going to look with me for similarities, for comparing and contrasting of Judah with Joseph and Tamar and Potiphar's wife. Does that make sense? And you can also keep your handout handy. There's four things on there that are also relevant to this chapter, but we don't have time to get into all that, all right? But reading these together is so much fun because you see, like, Moses is a master storyteller, and God is him, like, like deliberately just playing back and forth between the two stories, but you've got to have them both in your head at the same time. So you're ready to have your brain split in half two stories at once? That's what you kind of kind of do, right? Let's split our brains, and some of your brains are already we split anyway, so... <laughs> Maybe you need to put your brain back together while I do this story. I don't know. So, all right, let's see if we can do this. I'm going to divide this little story up as I read it into four acts. I think there's four scenes in this story, right? So I think that's easier to help form some kind of structure in chapter 39. So chapter 39, the very first scene or act is verses 1 to 6. So let me read those. And as I do, be thinking about what you just saw in chapter 38. Now, Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and all over that he had, over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. All right, so there is some repetition in this story as we go through that's going to help us to see the similarities and there's some just singular words we got to look for. So one of the biggest things that we got to get out of this chapter is the the reusing of the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The reason it's significant is because this is the last time Lord, Yahweh, is going to be used until we finish the book of Genesis. So it's significant because that's a pretty big deal. And the word Lord is used eight times in this chapter. So just just to kind of back up for a moment, in case we, we don't say this often enough, the center of this story is God, not Joseph. Make sense? This is the story of God more than the story of Joseph. It's book-ended, very similarly. The last six verses of the chapter is exactly the same verbiage as the first six verses of the chapter. It's all about Yahweh the Lord, Yahweh the Lord, Yahweh the Lord. So God is there, and he is with Joseph, and he's causing Joseph to succeed. And everything seems to be going right for Joseph, because God is present, Yahweh is present. What about in chapter 38? Who's there and how's it spelled? Mm-hmm. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And what's he doing in that chapter? Mm-hmm. Judgment. So you got, for the first time in a very long time, you've got capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, chapter 38, people are dying. And then we seem present again in the next chapter, and what's he doing? Blessing. He's pouring down blessing. So we're supposed to contrast, I think, what God is doing in these two chapters. The Lord is with Joseph bringing prosperity, bringing life, bringing hope, bringing help, doing everything God said he was going to do through Joseph. So that's Act One. Just kind of hold that in your head, and those differences. Now we move to Act Two, verses seven to ten. You guys know this story, right? Probably familiar to most of us. So let me just read it. Now Joseph, sorry, verse six b. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Evidently, just like his mom Rachel, right? It's the only other time that phrase is used in Scripture. Is talking about his mom Rachel. So he's. Looks like his mom, I guess, in some ways, in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Anything sound familiar from the previous chapter? Okay, just track, keep track, keep, your, keep that other brain going. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. All right, we're a small enough group. What word jumps out at you in this chapter that was in the last chapter? I heard it over here. Starts with a W, ends in (laughs) ickedness. Wickedness. Who is calling things wickedness in chapter 38? Who says it's wicked in 38? God. Who is calling sin wickedness in this chapter? Do you see any similarities between the two types of sins that are present in these two stories? Joseph gets it in this story, doesn't he? That's wicked! Does Judah? He misses it, doesn't he? He doesn't get it. Joseph sees this a sin against God. It seems like the Joseph story, chapter 39, not only is God the center of the story, but God is the center of Joseph's heart. I mean, Joseph could have gotten away with it very easily. We're going to find that in a minute. But, but he sees God. God is the center of all of this. And so he's willing to live very differently in light of that. So one more thing we need to see from this. You guys got your little half sheet Handout? Which one of the four are present right here in the story? Say it louder, Alex. Testing. Number four, right? You don't think Joseph's being tested here? Who are you going to live for, Joseph? Who are you going to follow, Joseph? It's a test. And seemingly, at least this part, part, point in the story, Joseph is passing the test. Remember, the point of Joseph being tested like He is, is that he is a type of Christ. That's what Stephen tells us in Acts 7 when he gets stoned, right? So we're supposed to look at this and go, wow, just like Jesus was tested in many ways and he passed the test because he didn't want to sin against God. Joseph here is is an example to us of what Jesus is going to be like when Jesus comes. Jesus is going to pass the test. You, you, so you see the test that Jesus goes through when he gets taken out in the wilderness and, and other places, and he passes the test. Joseph is a foreshadowing here of what's going to happen to Jesus when Jesus comes. All right, let me come to act, act 3, Scene 3. Curtain goes back up again, verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. All right, what's happening here? There's Two phrases that are repeated over and over again in this section that relate back to the last chapter. Actually, two chapters ago. The first one is the word garment. Man, poor Joseph and all of his clothes. (laughs) Just creates issues for the dude, right? Like, here we go again. But I do think it's supposed to help us to go, oh, this is a story, not individual little pieces. So the last time we see Joseph with a garment on, it gets ripped off and he gets thrown into a pit. This time, Joseph gets his garment ripped off and he gets thrown into prison, right? So I think we're supposed to see links here to to the story. Don't read it in isolation. But what's different here in many ways, this garment, right, Joseph's garment gets left behind. And how is that left-behind garment used? Against him, to prove him guilty. What about in the Judah story? It's not a garment that's left behind, but his stuff is left behind, and what's it used for? Guilty. But what is the difference between the two? Innocent. Joseph's innocent. So Joseph is being accused of something he didn't do, and his garment is being used against him. Judah, he did it. And his stuff's left behind, and he is guilty. And he is found out through what is left behind. So I think... There's supposed to be some parallels here to see what's going on. Joseph's getting the bad end of the stick now. His stuff's getting used against him, but he is really an innocent man. The other phrase that's repeated a whole bunch of times here is her voice is heard. You see that verse 14? She calls out. Again in verse 14, she says, I cried out with a loud voice. Verse 15, I lifted up my voice and cried out. Verse 18, I lifted up my voice and out. And cried out. So she's speaking out against her, against him, against Joseph. So I see two things in this. First of all, whose voice do we hear crying out against Judah in the previous chapter? Tamar. Right? Tamar. Tamar is speaking out in that chapter. She's accusing guilty Judah. Here, Potiphar's wife using her voice to do what? to accuse innocent Joseph. So two ladies using their voices, one to accuse the innocent, one to accuse the guilty. I think we're supposed to notice that. And then I want you to look again at your handout. Because I think something else is going on here with Joseph and Jesus. If we look at number four again on your handout, there seems to be a a parallel here. Joseph is suffering like Jesus. Think about it. Whose voice is missing from the story? That scene. Joseph's. Joseph's not doing anything. Joseph is silent before his accuser. Does that sound familiar? Someone else who would be silent before his accuser? He's falsely accused, and yet Joseph is silent. just like Jesus would be falsely accused and Jesus would remain silent before his accusers. There seems to be parallel there. There's another one there that I didn't see until Jean was reading it. There's laughter. She's afraid they're going to laugh at her. Did you catch that in chapter 38? What does Judas say? If he can't find her to bring her the goat, the people are going to Laugh. Now, I've not, not given this any thought than the 10 seconds I've been standing here from the time that Gene read it. But there's something going on there again where God just trying to say, read the two chapters together. There's a link here. There's laughter. Laughter is somehow associated here with this, with this guilt, with doing something you shouldn't do. And both are concerned about it. Judah is concerned about it. And Potiphar's wife is concerned about it, or at least says she's concerned about it. So there's something going on there. There's something else going on that I didn't see until. It was being read. It's the goat thing. The goat thing. I'm like, okay, what's up with the goat? Why, why is there the goat? Why, why is there a goat in the Judah and Tamar story and a goat being slaughtered to let Joseph go into slavery in the chapter behind that? So there's there's more here just to draw our attention that this is a continuous story to keep our eyes on. All right, so now we go to Act Four, last one, verse 21. Joseph's in jail. In prison, according to the psalm verse, he's all bound up. And then it says, but... But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything... That was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So this little scene, we have Joseph is in jail. According to Psalm 105, his feet and his neck are bound up in jail. He's now in a pit again, in a prison and everything seems hopeless until you get to verse 21. Every time we see this phrase in scripture, it's just, a beautiful thing. Everything's gone wrong for Joseph, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He's in jail, but God is with him. He's in jail, but he's actually experiencing God's steadfast love. I mean, this is, this is life lessons forever for all of us. God's steadfast love does not mean that he's going to take you out of your situation. God will be with you in it. And we should just go home right now. Right? God's steadfast love doesn't mean, oh, let me change your situation. It just means he's going to be with you through it. He's going to stay with you. He's going to be with you. And, and I know that's not always true. I mean, Alex, I appreciate your exhortation. Just the honesty. There's times where, you know what? It doesn't seem like God's doing good. And I have to believe that Joseph, at the beginning of this trip in prison, was like, what the heck is going on? I just got out of a pit, sold into slavery. Things were going great. God's with me. It's victory. And then I'm in jail for something I didn't do. Is God even around? Is he listening? Does he know what's happening to me? I've been falsely accused. So God tells us what's going on. I hadn't forgotten you, Joseph. My steadfast love is being expressed to you by my being with you. I'm going to be with you in your situation. So we can compare now just how the two stories end, the one with Joseph and then with Judah. Joseph is falsely accused and in jail. Where's Judah at the end of his story? He's free. Wait, wait. So the guy who's guilty goes free, and the guy who was falsely accused ends up in jail. How does that happen? And why is that happening? In fact, Judah has two sons now, and things seem to be going fairly well for him. So what's happening? Do you see the play that's going on in front of our eyes? The guilty is free, and the innocent one is in jail. I just think it's more foreshadowing. The two stories together foreshadow what is going to happen when Jesus comes. It's like God wanted us to know that when Jesus showed up, what he was going to look like so we wouldn't miss it. Almost like that. But you know what the real kicker of this story is? This is is where I've had fun this week and lived this week. The real kicker of this story comes many, many years later. And it's seen in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke 3:33. I think we have those. Did Did we get you're awesome, thank you. These are the genealogies of Jesus, and you guys already know who's in the genealogy: Jacob. In Matthew it says, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez. Who's in Jesus' family line? Tamar. Judah and Tamar. Yeah, Luke, three, Luke, Luke chapter 3 tells us Harzan, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. We've got Tamar in Matthew 1, and we've got Judah in chapter, in chapter 1 of Matthew, and in Luke we've got Judah. Judah's the one that's in his family line. This is, you know, this is one of those like, oh God, let's see what you're really saying here. Jesus is a descendant of unrighteous Judah, not upright Joseph. That makes no sense. It should be the other way around. If God's going to send his son to earth, have him born in the line of Joseph, not Judah and not Tamar. Do you understand what's happening? I mean, this is, this is, this is joyful to us that Jesus would be the descendant of a child that is only born because Judah sleeps with a prostitute. Oops, daughter-in-law. And that's how Jesus comes about. It would make so much more sense for Jesus to be in the line of Judah. Yet it seems everywhere in Scripture, we see God working hard to show us that he loves to be related to messed up unrighteous people. That's it. He wants us to see the kind of people that he loves to be related to. The people that he loves to be with. Everywhere we turn in scripture, we see God relentlessly working to reverse our human thinking, which is, I want to be friends with the impressive people, the powerful people, the successful people. God's like, no, I want to be friends with sinners. I think I want to be Close to important people, popular people, the I've got it all together people. And God's like, no, I want to be close to the downcast and the downtrodden and the suffering. I mean, the beauty of all this is where it heads to Jesus being born in the line of Tamar and the line of Judah. God wants to be close to the brokenhearted and to the sinners. Isn't that what Jesus said when he came? I came not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. He came for us. He came for the messed up and he wants to be close to you this morning. He wants to be close to you. I have talked to too many people in too short a time that say things like God would never want me around because I'm too messed up. I won't come to your church because it will burn to the ground if I walk in. And I say, look, if it hasn't burned down with me here, it ain't going to burn down with you here because I know better, and I know the stuff that I do and think. So my friends, this morning, I know we covered a lot of ground. I pray there was something in these two chapters that encouraged your soul, that built your faith. And at the very least, I just pray that we would see just the beauty of God in the story that he's writing. He's writing a beautiful story with all of these details, and he's led Moses to craft it all this way so that we would see the coming of Christ. So we'd see what God is doing and God's way of working and that God is at the center. And this morning, you may not feel like God is at the center. Just like I'm sure Joseph at some points didn't feel like God was at the center, but he is. So may we submit to whatever he's doing in our lives and relate to him as the one who is in charge of all things and is showing us steadfast love even if we find ourselves in a place that's very difficult. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. If this morning you want prayer for anything, maybe you feel like you're in a prison and you're not so sure God loves you or is with you and you need prayer or something, please don't hesitate to talk to someone around you to get prayer to find Tyler or I for prayer. But we can do that while we're singing. The band's going to come. We'll sing a song. A song. Or I can just hum a song. That works.